1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'll be hosting the channel today. Today, we're going to be talking to Freddie Fox, who is the Simon Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. And Freddie is the author of Participant Observers. Anthropology, Colonial Development, and the Reinvention of Society in Britain, which was just published by the University of California Press in 2023. So, Freddie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for writing the book. This This book is uh, a history of social anthropology in England, I suppose, from the 1920s to the 1960s, with a focus on Malinowski and then especially many people who emerged out of Malinowski's network, some of whom are not so well known uh, in anthropology and history today. And I, I really uh, appreciated seeing the light that was shown on some of those people. So, so thanks for writing the book. Yeah,
0: thanks so much.
1: So uh, how is it that you would come to write a book on this topic? Uh, I understand that this was your dissertation. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about the story of how you decided to settle on um, social anthropology in the latter half of the 20th century?
0: Yeah, so this was based on my my PhD dissertation and there was a very winding road to get there. Um, So the first time I heard about anthropology was actually in high school and I had no idea what anthropology was. It was in a religion class and my teacher had an old VHS cassette tape um, that he put on um, in a class on cultural relativism, which was on the UK uh, syllabus at the time. And uh, the video showed... uh, a short clip on the Zande Poison Oracle, and it explained what it was. And then the teacher kind of raised this as a question of, you know, well, how do we think about our own beliefs and how do we compare them? And I didn't know that those were anthropological questions, but they really got me interested in in those kind of at the time, I suppose, I thought more philosophical questions. And I thought the anthropologists um, were even more interesting when I when I heard more about them as an undergraduate. I was a historian at King's College London. I was taught by a great historian, Anne Goldgar, who taught um, actually early modern European history, so European history in the 16th to 18th centuries. And she taught uh, that history alongside readings from anthropology. Um, and that kind of connected up those two moments where I thought about kind of difference and change over time and and beliefs in different places and, and in different times.
1: That's so interesting. You know, for many people, their origin story as an anthropologist comes from exposure to those kinds of questions. But uh, for you, you ended up choosing history and, and studying anthropology.
0: Yeah, that's right. So for, for one reason or another, I can't really put my finger on on why I was never ever attempted to actually study anthropology or be an anthropologist if there was actually another discipline I wanted to do when I was an undergraduate it would have been philosophy and I was seriously thinking about about doing a philosophy graduate degree but I didn't I ended up just pursuing history and the history of ideas Um, but the questions that that motivated me in the history of ideas were questions that anthropologists were interested in the questions of of cultural difference of belief of rationality um, of institutions, of economic action, um, and it struck me that here was this group of, of social scientists um, who'd kind of posed those questions in really concrete ways with really interesting examples and with a kind of cosmopolitan um, approach to, to humanity and all its diversity that I really found exciting as an undergrad. Um, and I... Began a PhD at the University of Cambridge with Peter Mandler, who who took me on uh, my dissertation project, um, and yeah, it changed and chopped and changed. But uh, the book, after gosh, I don't know, eight nine years, has 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 come out now.
1: Well, that is that is about how long it takes all of us. So I uh, I think uh, you shouldn't be too worried about the the time to publication. That's a a constant issue. You know, you you mentioned Peter Mandler. I think of him as the author of uh, Return from the Natives, which is a, a very, very good history of um, Mead, Bateson, and sort of the American cultural anthropologists of the 1930s. Can you tell me about how his intellectual interests steered you in the direction of this dissertation, or just maybe let the audience know a little bit about what his approach is?
0: Yeah, so Peter's a kind of extraordinary uh, polymath historian. I mean, he's—I actually came across him first as a as an undergrad in London because he had written about country houses at, in, I think, the seventeen hundreds or eighteen hundreds or something. I haven't read that article for over a decade but it's but he he's a kind of historian of all kinds of different things and just one string on his bow is the history of anthropology and i was kind of casting around looking for someone who might um be interested in 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 supervising something on the history of british anthropology and i kind of couldn't really find that many people in history departments and then I came across Peter and his his book on American anthropology so I sent him an email and he said um, sure um, and he had read you know the kind of classic works of of literature on the history of anthropology um, George Stocking, um, Henrika Kuklick um, but by the time I really had got into the weeds I think you know, it, it's no disservice to Peter to say that, you know, that I was working on some quite kind of arcane and obscure stuff. Um, so I was kind of beyond his, um, his expertise, but I think his his imprints all over the book, and the kinds of things, in the kinds of conversations I've I've brought my anthropologists into having with each other, and with the field of British studies. Because um, I should say to listeners that this book is a history of anthropology, but it's also very much um, a work of modern British history, and it's actually published in a, in a series of of modern British studies with the University of California Press.
1: Yes, you know, I'm I'm an anthropologist and I uh took George Stocking's History of Anthropology seminar. So I I have that influence and that kind of approach is very focused on the internal politics of departments and uh fundings, and it's less focused on field work and the embeddedness of anthropologists in their broader context. So one of the things I really appreciated about this was that it was it's not just a history of anthropology, it's really a history of, of Britain and the role that anthropologists played in it. And I, I thought that that was a really uh, useful way of widening the scope of how those of us who are interested in doing history of anthropology um, could imagine doing it. And uh, hopefully for people who do British studies, vice versa, they could see how this would be an interesting focus as well.
0: Oh, I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall of, the, of that seminar. I mean, it goes without saying that, the, that especially after Tyler, um, by Stocking was just my kind of Bible in a way. I mean, you know, there are a few quibbles I had with him, but I think we're very lucky in, in the history of anthropology to have, I mean, not only Stocking's work, but so many really, really seriously, deeply researched books of, of, of history and secondary literature and commentary.
1: Yes. And, um, you know, one of the central figures for the first couple of uh, chapters in your book is Malinovsky, someone who's been the subject of research. um, I mean, you mentioned uh, George's book, there's also a massive two volume biography, the second volume of which I think is going to be coming out. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about um, what your argument is about Malinowski, the role that he plays in your book, and um, how you uh, see him as uh, playing an important part in in British history.
0: Yeah, so in a way, you know, my my book kind of traces really quite a familiar story, or or a story that would be familiar in many ways to lots of anthropologists who. Um, might teach a kind of survey course of of social anthropology, at least in Britain um, and maybe in America in sociocultural anthropology, because really one of the key figures is this guy Malinowski. Um, And I begin with him really in chapter one, and he's the kind of thread that runs through so much of the book. Um, So so my argument about him is that he's... um, I mean, without without going into too much more detail, just hugely important. Um, uh, he's important, maybe though, for not the reason that that many anthropologists might explain to their undergraduates that he's important. I mean, now we know uh, after so much important decades worth of research that while he's certainly an important figure in the history of field work, there were many other important figures uh, like Rivers and Seligman and Haddon who had very similar ideas about doing um, concentrated field work in one location. Um, But Malinowski really brought a um, sensitivity to what was later termed kind of sociological functionalism. So that is the idea that different parts of a culture relate to each other and different institutions um, function together to create the culture which encases all of the human beings within it in various complicated ways. Um, so he's very important for the history of ideas, but maybe just to call back to something you said about stocking and about the importance of teaching and funding, that's really the thing that I saw him as crucial for. The book really makes the argument that in the early 1920s, and maybe even in the mid-1920s, even after he's published his hugely important book, Argonauts of the Western Pacific, Malinowski really isn't The leading light in in British anthropology, he's suddenly on his way to becoming that that way. But I try to tell a relatively non teleological history. I try to say that there are lots of different alternatives that could have happened, and it's really Malinowski's um, gathering of Rockefeller funding and his alliances with people like Frederick Lugard, Lord Lugard, who's a imperial. uh, colonial administrator and um, member of the League of Nations Mandate Commission that give Malinowski sufficient institutional power to actually reproduce his method because it's, it's that attention in my book at least the argument is about not so much just ideas but how they're um, reproduced within a seminar that really matters and that's how disciplines get changed over time you've got to have the ideas but you've got to teach them and you've got to make sure that your students to a greater or lesser extent, follow your in your path, follow in your footsteps if you want to change your discipline.
1: I think Malinowski is remembered in the US and perhaps in the UK as well as sort of the father of fieldwork and the discoverer of Kula. But your book, as you're saying, really points out that what's important for him is that he was able to train so many students. And uh, you have this wonderful chapter where you show how much of fieldwork was not about being in the field necessarily but that the field was connected back to the LSE where Malinowski was teaching and that people were constantly communicating with him sending him uh, letters and then also sending letters and communicating with their fellow graduate students about Malinowski. so that you get the you get the sense there that the field work is itself not a, a lone person on a beach somewhere but a uh, part of a network of of people who are in that institution, generating a cohort.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I actually gave an early version of that chapter at Cambridge, um, in the departmental seminar in in the anthropology department. Um, And, uh, you know, I found a couple of things. One, Anthropologists love hearing gossip about anthropologists from a few generations ago. Um, so they loved hearing about Audrey Richards and and all of the others. Uh, Maya Fortes from the department all writing their letters to each other. Um, but I think I was struck afterwards by people coming up to me and, and talking to me in the Q&A as well, how familiar it felt. You know, sure, people in the 1930s, these anthropologists didn't have um, cell phones or the internet. But this idea that you bring up from that chapter of wanting to keep in touch, and also that dynamic of your doctoral supervisor kind of almost breathing down your neck, um, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, is something that lots of lots of contemporary anthropologists um, uh, kind of sympathised with. Although, having said that, I think that there is a bit of a myth. I don't know whether this is the same Alex in America that at least. Partly in the UK, there's, there's a sense that the history of anthropology proves that, that fieldwork can't be taught because there's some remark by Evans Pritchard that, you know, no one can be prepared for it. You just have to go and do it. But at least if you look at Malinowski's archive, he really didn't have that view. He was obsessed with his students and their research and presenting it in the seminar and keeping in touch with them practically.
1: You tell these stories of him sending people off to fieldwork with uh, masses of pencils and charts and tables that he he really wanted he he wanted to be involved. You you get that feeling just in general about Malinowski that um, that whenever anyone was doing something that didn't involve him, he felt like he needed to be a part of that experience as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean,
0: he's a He's a kind of galactic ego. That's the sense you get from the from the letters.
1: Mm. And, uh, you know, you can tell me this as well. I get the feeling from the book that what sort of made anthropology a distinct discipline in this period and maybe today was not really the, the theory, but the topic that sort of having a fieldwork experience and then Managing the sort of uh, psychic and emotional and um, methodological issues that that sort of became the center of anthropology in this period. It was it was sort of like being analyzed, you know. It was this experience that you went through, and then the discipline was just about trying to figure out what had happened to you afterwards, which was something that ironically you were trying to figure out at the time while you were corresponding with other people. Does that does that make sense? Does that ring true to your research? Yeah, I mean that's such an interesting um,
0: uh, analogy there with with analysis. Um, I think that there's definitely you know you, you, by the time you get to the end of the Second World War and what's called in Britain the Association of Social Anthropologists gets up and running, um, you know you really have to, to to cut the mustard as a anthropologist as a social anthropologist. You really have to have done field work um, and. You know, there is there's a anthropologist more or less um, honest about what that might have involved. You know, were they really as um, uh, fluent in the local language as they as they uh, said they were, or might have made themselves out to be? Were they really as as you know you said? Were they really as as kind of isolated in the field, or were they actually constantly in contact with each other and with the LSE? And um, but certainly, yeah, that that collective. Experience of fieldwork, um, and I think what fieldwork taught these anthropologists and different generations in a way, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of rough and ready empiricism about it um, that also connects these anthropologists. I I don't know about now, but certainly at the time, there was a sense that you know you just had to go and observe, partly because there was so little written about. places that these anthropologists were interested in in england and in english but also because they were very very skeptical of what had been written you know whether it was by missionaries or whether it was by administrators or whether it was travelers tales they you know often ransacked that literature for their own ends but they really thought that it had been skewed by um bias and you know they They definitely had their own biases, this generation of anthropologists, but they really thought you had to be there to see it, to answer new questions. You couldn't just sit at your desk and read all these books and find out about different parts of the world. You had to go and witness and be an empiricist, basically.
1: Yeah, I think perhaps in some sense, Malinowski's own sort of uh, heroic self-conception has left a deep mark on the field that, uh, you know, it's only... He or his descendants who have had this heroic experience are both more you know they they know more than the so-called man on the spot. they about the so-called natives. they also know more than the natives themselves. They seem to have found this way to have this uh, unique epistemological privilege, which I think in some sense maybe derives from Malinowski's own ego. It's, uh, it's it's interesting to see how um, people, in the center of institutions can have such a, a big effect on the field. Yeah, that's exactly right. I really like that, uh, that term epistemological
0: privilege. I wish I had used it myself.
1: <laughs> um. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm not the first as well. But, but maybe, you know, we, we, since we're talking about fieldwork, um, you mentioned Lord Lugard earlier, and uh, just how isolated these anthropologists were. As, a, as an anthropologist of the Pacific, I was quite struck by the um, difficulties that these researchers had in, in East Africa and other areas of Africa, I suppose, where, um, you know, the I was just struck by how oppressive the government was and the difficulties of white researchers doing, doing research in this place because of their so-called natural alliance. And indeed, Malinowski is today, I think, remembered, especially in the U.S., as sort of the ultimate the ultimate evil white person who claims to know everything and um, refuses to acknowledge indigenous perspectives. Uh, But your story I think is a more complicated one of the colonial privilege of these researchers. Um, But they also seem to be have been embedded in, in colonial networks to be sure, but these were not sort of pro settler networks. Is that right? Can you tell me a bit more about Malinovsky's relationship with Lugard and and um, their opponents. Yeah, that's that's right. I think that that one of the key um, kind of breakthroughs
0: in my research, when I was trying to kind of piece together what the relationship between these anthropologists was and the colonial state, for want of a better word, on the on the fringes of the British Empire, um, was to re um, to bring back in the the figure literally and metaphorically of the of the settler in Eastern and Central Africa, um, but also the planter, the um mine owner, etc., in the Pacific as well. And lots of those figures are, are are moving across the empire, but also bedding in and building businesses. And it struck me that you couldn't really understand the politics of the anthropologists unless you um triangulated really between them the colonial administration, the people they were studying, and the other Europeans in the colonies. And, um, yeah, while these social anthropologists quite rightly get criticised now for um, the kind of coloniality of their knowledge and the way that, um, at least in their writings, they leave very little space for indigenous agency, um, their positionality is not only vis-a-vis the ethnographic subjects of their research, but also um, these figures of, of the settlers. And when I was looking into the the, um, the history of, of this institution, which really funds a lot of the anthropologists and that's, that's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, it gets founded in the late 1920s, um, it becomes the International African Institute Um, It turns out that this figure, Lord Lugard, who looms so large, um, is really in some ways on the political back foot in East Africa. Um, The politics that he's associated with, with the League of Nations um, and Malinowski himself, who's a supporter of that international politics and of liberalism, um, is kind of on the back foot um, because at least in the UK, there's a conservative government. Um, They're full-throated imperialists, and in alliance with South Africans like Jan Smuts and settlers in Kenya and in what's now Zimbabwe and Zambia, um, there were really strong pushes to um, even further expropriate African peoples, um, and anthropologists um, kind of set their face against those projects to a greater or lesser extent. Um, And at least I see part of the politics of their ethnography in trying to enter into a dialogue um, with white racists who said that colonized peoples had no culture, no law, um, no economics. And the thrust of all of the anthropologists who studied with Malinowski students was to say that that argument was wrong. Um, And that has a particular politics in the British Empire in the 1920s and 30s, which I've tried to reconstruct in the book.
1: Mm, Yeah, it's more nuanced than the anthropologist as handmaiden of colonialism or the heroic ally of indigenous people. It sounds like um, Malinowski was on the side of, I guess, a sort of uh, League of Nations approach that uh, it was, I'm sorry, maybe you could just explain it for me uh, as someone whose uh, field site who had not yet been uh, visited by any Europeans at this point. This is uh, a anti-settler, pr- paternalistic, um, protective uh, regime. Is that the idea?
0: That's absolutely right. That's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head. It's a very paternalistic um, idea of governance and administration. Um it uh, thinks that uh, colonized peoples should have some minimal um, autonomy um, and uh, political autonomy, economic autonomy. Um, but that crucially, um, the people, especially who live in um, League of Nations mandates, so the League of Nations, this big organization that grows up after the First World War, has this really key um, role in uh Kind of legitimating the rule of former German and Ottoman um, territories um, that were run by various European imperialist powers. Um, and the League of Nations, in its famous Article 22, has this kind of paternalist um, impetus built into it. Um, it says that um, these peoples who live in these territories should be Um, developed as part of what they call a sacred trust Um, but at the same time it says that while the standard of living should be raised um, these are peoples who are in the in the terms of of the of the article 22 aren't aren't able to stand on their own feet is the is the term I think that's used Um, so there's this mixture which is you know has such a long history in development thinking um, right up to this day which is Um, kind of paternalism in in the present in the hope of autonomy that's deferred into the future Um, and that's very much the politics of Malinowski and his students it's liberal it's ameliorist if if to coin a term it's um, paternalist um, and uh, but yet it's got a certain kind of protectionism built into it, which at least for the time within Europe, put that ideology on the more progressive wing of politics.
1: It didn't have an immediate um, political push at that time. It, uh, there was, I think you used the word defer, there's always a sense that someday these people would be able to have increased rights and self-determination, but but not today and who knows, perhaps in a 100 years from now or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's why, at least to me, it seems, you know, when you read the critiques of anthropology in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, this whole generation of anthropologists is so repudiated um, because in an era of decolonization, of anti-colonial nationalism in particular, um, the, the argument that people's rights to govern themselves should be deferred was quite rightly seen as um anathema to uh the desires and um political hopes of of colonized peoples themselves
1: yeah yeah the anthropologists um sort of stayed in the same place while uh many people moved to their left and they eventually found themselves outflanked it sounds like yeah, yeah
0: that's absolutely right but I mean with j- just to kind of carry on that idea I mean I wonder though how far away that I mean this is me speaking as a historian from outside the discipline I do wonder how far removed current social science practitioners are from that let's call it um, paternalist view I mean certainly there are some there are lots of critical social scientists um there are some Marxist social scientists but I think that if you look at social sciences connections to development projects to the united nations to building up um, capabilities approaches in development there's always some um, well there's almost always some kind of institution um, whether it's an ngo or um, a kind of aid and development program um, by which development is brought in to places which anthropologists traditionally study and i think that that in a way it's easy to repudiate Malinowski and not look at the current politics of the social sciences and say the social sciences and anthropology in particular have moved past that moment. But I think at least in part, I wanted my, I want my book. I hope my book will raise questions for current practitioners about where they do stand on, on all kinds of important contemporary, um, questions, uh, So I I can't put it any any more precisely than that because I'm not a current anthropologist and I don't read enough contemporary anthropology. But it strikes me that there may at least be some um, echoes of that politics in the contemporary moment Um, and that some anthropologists who may repudiate Malinowski might not repudiate internationalism, cosmopolitanism and the importance of international institutions in um, blunting the sharp edges of global capitalism in a kind of protectionist direction?
1: It's an interesting question. I think a lot of this has to do with the inevitable compromises that one makes being involved in politics. Um, I think you, you outlined very well how anthropologists needed um, colonial funding uh, in order to do their research and claim to have... Uh, some contribution to make to governance. But much of the time, um, they're, they're, they were the only people who thought that they could make that contribution. On, on the other hand, you know, I think that um, deigning to not be involved with those problems can result in a kind of uh, deferralist politics. I suppose that there would be some people, I, I imagine like a more class and labor-based radical politics that would look at the abolitionist approaches that are very popular in the United States today, which are focused on imagining a new or better world, or um, creating small-scale examples of what the world will be like someday, and would say, well, this seems to be, this seems to have a kind of uh, a lack of contemporary relevance. So, so I think there's a, the politics get quite strange. I think there are people on both the left and the right who would look at the deferral of radical change as um, something that could be criticized. But um, yeah, I, I wonder if the, it's not very popular in America today in the academy to make that critique of abolitionist thought, but uh, that does seem one possible position. Does this maybe take us to this discussion of, um, Application and the CSSRC. I, I do want to hit Malinovsky's public role as well, but um, maybe this would be a good time to talk about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one way to to get into this question of what this Colonial Social Science Research Council is all about is to is to say that up until the point at which this government money comes on tap in the nineteen forties, you know, really the British state's funding of of social sciences, let alone of universities in comparison to the present, is absolutely minimal. And really the big-time funders in the UK, as they are in the US, are the giant philanthropic foundations, most importantly, the Rockefeller Foundation, which, you know, when you go to the archives of the Rockefeller Foundation as a researcher and you um, are doing your own research, I mean, I couldn't help but look up you know, some of the books that had influenced me. And so many classics of social science of the 1930s to 1970s came one way or another through the funding auspices of the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, whether it's from the Social Science Research Council or any number of other organizations which are primarily funded by them, um, it's this kind of huge behemoth which, which drives a lot of social science research in the UK and in the USA. Anyway, so that's by way of background to say that You know, social scientists, unless they're gentlemen amateurs with, um, you know, land and rent, which pays their income, need some kind of um, uh, support for their research. And at least in the 20s and 30s, that comes from the Rockefeller Foundation in the UK. Um, And then the government steps in in the 40s for about a decade um, to fund through this organization called the Colonial Social Science Research Council, um, anthropologists to Kind of work on development projects um and to advise uh colonial governments um on how to kind of target and fashion um this push for development really in the british empire that happens after the second world war and this is also crucially um, a moment before or just at the start of a moment when economists are becoming interested in these questions anthropology really gets there first and that's what i want to try and get across in the book it's social anthropologists which are who are first really getting into this question of development and squabbling over it and wondering whether or not they should be um supporting it um and they kind of have the field for about 10 years um from the 1940s into the early 1950s
1: yes as a matter of fact in many ways your history is the the story of the um the decline of anthropology is having public impact. Um, Anthropologists are eventually replaced by economists. And then uh, in higher education, sociologists are eager to start departments in um, new universities that are founded after World War II. But um, the anthropologists decide to keep it uh, a bit of an elite field and um, decline from relevance almost through a, a conscious choice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think you picked up on the, that's good that 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 narrative art came through, because that's something that I wanted to, to, that, you know, working on the dissertation to the book for any um, exhausted uh, postgrads and postdocs listening to this is really hard. And I think that trying to find those, you know, decline and fall, rise, at least if you're writing history, trying to find a narrative that fits but doesn't overly simplify is is really hard and definitely the the kind of takeover but in some senses of economics of the the field that anthropology had had some claim to monopoly over in the social sciences, um, which really marked by the mid 1950s um, and that's kind of that kind of closes out the book in a way the rise of development economics um which faces its own crisis uh, later in the 20th century. Um, there's a kind of passing of the baton in some ways Um, and as you say the UK experiences very much that the discipline remains very small it focuses on graduate students it you know invests a lot of funding in its students and in field work just like it did under Malinowski and it it stays by an active um, strategy only within a few elite institutions Um, and in a way that was that meant that that it didn't expand very fast, but its still i think my my impression of the discipline in the u k now is that it it it's it kind of rode the um Thatcherite cuts of the universities in the eighties in the eighties especially um by clinging onto to a kind of prestige and actually it still has i think social anthropology quite a lot of prestige within the university system in the u k although you know you'd have to ask anthropologists themselves um whether that's the case
1: yeah my impression is that as an outsider is that is that the decision to be relatively small and uh, to embed yourself in central institutions in the educational field shall we say um did uh, does allow that british tradition uh, a tremendous amount of existential security which people in other countries might not have but also uh limits its scope and um and what it can do, which perhaps is um, is uh, something that people are very happy with over there. Malinowski, it seemed, um, didn't want to just be, didn't want to just ensure that there would always be an anthropologist in All Souls. However, um, you, you describe him as... Um, well, you, you tell this story about him um, appearing on the radio and being a, an important public intellectual. Edmund Leach mentioned something about this in, in one of the interviews with him, that Malinowski was not famous for fieldwork, but for sex. And um, can you tell me a little bit about that? And I have to admit, I've never heard Malinowski's voice. Have you heard Malinowski's voice? Did he have a strong accent? No, I've never heard his voice.
0: I wonder whether there are any recordings still. I mean, the 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 so I, I talk in the book about him on the radio in the late 1920s or 1930s. But the, the source for that is some limited content from the BBC archives, which is written um, letters and transcripts. But then a um, a published set of what are basically transcripts um, edited and collected by Ashley Montague um, of this dialogue um, between Malinowski and another Evolutionary anthropologist about sex and the family. Um, I mean, you're you're absolutely right to say that this very small, very elitist view of anthropology is absolutely not what Malinowski wants. He wants a big, brash, brazen, applied, um, close to administration. Um, rippling with power um, discipline he thinks that he can kind of solve all the world's questions and and the the one as you say that he's most famous for um, in Britain in the 20s and 30s is not his Argonauts book it's all of the stuff about sex and repression and the family and that just hooks him into this world that I try to capture a bit of in one of the chapters of kind of let's call it um, Highbrow or kind of upper middle brow, um, kind of newspaper reading, um, little magazine reading, novel reading um, men and women at the time who were, you know, in this post Freudian moment. Um, they tended to be mostly um, kind of. I guess you might say secular or kind of post-Christian. They were thinking about different kinds of utopias. They were thinking about contraception. And Malinowski just kind of bursts in after Freud saying that, um, you know, the the differences in family structure really matter. And that, you know, the English have their own kind of family structure um, and that maybe people should be thinking about that and that marriage and motherhood are at the core of all different kinship systems. That's his other really key um, intervention. And as I kind of set out in the book, again, this might be unfamiliar to anthropologists reading it, but less so for people in British studies, this focus on on motherhood and marriage in the 1920s and 30s is just everywhere in social policy, in the writing of of various kind of intellectuals broadly on the left. Um, It's this moment called um or this kind of movement vaguely termed kind of maternalism um and it's very strongly embedded in the british welfare state um uh by william beveridge um when he thinks about paying out various kind of social insurance to various family members um this is something that historians of modern britain might be more familiar with um but might be less familiar to anthropologists
1: it's interesting in the united states at least um uh, well, I don't know. I think you mentioned this as well. The 1920s um, and modernist thinkers in the United States were anti-maternalist. They were sort of opposed to the Victorian spinster and the moralist and uh, wanted to uh, do the Charleston and drink bootleg rum and um, this sort of thing. Um, but you're the, the people that you describe. these are people like Bertrand Russell, Aldous Huxley, uh, maybe D.H. Lawrence, someone who I I was not familiar with before, named Naomi Mitchison. These are people who are trying to figure out how we could have a a modern family which was free from the free from religion, but still, um, I suppose, decent and and stable, some, something like that.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And again, you know this is a this is a a politics which to us feels quite conservative and which later feminists in the in the 70s especially really um attacked um but a bit like malinovsky malinovsky's colonial politics um in the context of british intellectual culture put him on the kind of liberal or what you might call in america a kind of progressive wing of politics his views about sex and the family also put him on that on that progressive wing Um, and it it was part of a kind of broader critique really a cultural critique of the authority of the patriarch within the household Um, in on the one hand this maternalism, this focus on marriage and motherhood um, seems, as I said, quite conservative. But on the other hand, it flips the focus from the Victorian um, father of the household to saying that the mother is the most important person. And, you know, certainly within, you know, broad um uh, broad kind of, uh, parts of the feminist movement at the time, that was, that was something that was, you know, really crucial to, to their politics.
1: Maybe we should just talk a little bit about Malinovsky's relationship with women, which I suppose we could or could not label as feminism. You know, he was raised by a single mother who occupied an absolutely enormous amount of his psychic life. And, um, uh, So I think if for discussions of motherhood, he was in the right place at the right time. But he also had warm relationships with many female students and often very um, agonistic, difficult relationships with his male students. You do a good job in the book of saying that it's a bit more complicated than that dichotomy. But can you just tell me a little bit about how, once again, his personal life and his relationship with students of different genders uh, sort of uh shaped the institutional effects he had given given his centrality? Yeah, I mean
0: it it is really striking how many important students of his were women. I think that the thing to say next though is it's really striking and perhaps unsurprising for people who know about how, you know, institutions work that no matter how brilliant those students were as grad students and as early career researchers, almost none of them ended up with professorial appointments in the post-war academy. In various ways, they um, did gain a lot of um, respect within the discipline and became very important figures in their own right. Um, Audrey Richards, for example, Um, Becomes the first um, leader of the Center for African Studies at Cambridge and a hugely important figure. Lucy Mayer becomes only in the 60s a professor of, um, I think it's colonial administration or administrative anthropology or applied anthropology, I can't quite remember which, um, in the LSE. Um, But Margaret Reid becomes a professor, but in education, not in anthropology. And if we think about the post war professors, you know, those people who, in in my view, take forward Malinowski's kind of seminar culture as these patriarchs. They're all men. They're Evans Pritchard, they're Raymond Firth, they're Maya Fortes, they're Edmund Leach. Um, these are the these are the people who end up reproducing the discipline after the war. And um, this brilliant generation of of women researchers, while still very important, don't keep their hands on or don't get their hands on those levers of of institutional. Um, reproduction that they would have had if they had been, you know, the professor as you put it at All Souls or um, the William Wise Professor at Cambridge um, or indeed the Professor of Social Anthropology at LSE. Um, you have to really get into um, the era of Mary Douglas and Marilyn Strathern to to find professorial appointments um, of women of of comparable stature. Um, to men in terms of ability to um, reshape the discipline institutionally.
1: Yes. And Douglas was, I, I believe, um, had many, many appointments before she finally, finally received uh, a permanent position uh, in the UK. Um, I, you know, you talk about not wanting to tell a teleological history. For, for uh, listeners, it's worth noting that Malinowski went to America on a uh, a trip to the United States and Mexico, and then World War II broke out, and he ended up uh, not ever returning to to the UK. So, you know, one possible future we could imagine is if that if he didn't die at a relatively young age in, in at Yale in the United States and had returned to the UK, uh, and and was in a position to advance some of those women's careers, it would be very interesting to see what social anthropology in Britain would be like if they had had two or three more decades of Malinowski? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I mean, because this other
0: figure who we haven't
1: talked about at all, but
0: who is really on the margins of the book is is Alfred Radcliffe Brown. And he he's the one who gets the All Souls professorship. And it's his um, influence on Maya Fortis and Evans Pritchard of this kind of what's known as as structural functionalism, this focus on social structure that becomes the kind of calling card of the post-war British anthropologist, that, that Malinowski moves to the US at the end of the 1930s and in the Second World War, just as Radcliffe Brown comes to Britain and then the kind of emphasis of the discipline um, kind of shifts through the 40s and the 50s closer to Radcliffe Brown's ideas than towards um Malinowski's ideas um and again yeah the the interesting gender politics that that it's Fortes and and Max Gluckman and Evans-Pritchard who are closest to the Radcliffe-Brown tradition and they end up you know as important figures
1: yes i i think one of the things that i appreciated about your book is that we have in in standard histories of anthropology we hear so much about um we hear so much about Evans Pritchard and uh, Gluckman and many of those people, but then you have these wonderful chapters on um, Elizabeth Bott and uh, Young and Wilmot and this other tradition of social science, which um, I think many people will not have have heard of, but but uh, continue alongside that work, which which is more hegemonic in anthropology. So, could you maybe? Tell me about that side about um this work on uh sort of uh, urban anthropology and social networking in Britain
0: yeah so this is something that that I think um you know if I could bring the anthropologist to British studies in a way I could bring bring kind of British studies to anthropology and point out that actually in this moment when the discipline is is becoming you know really getting significant kind of institutional power in the uk in the in the 1940s and 50s um we often think of that as a period when um anthropology is kind of in its uh dominant form of, of british social anthropology and and describing all of these um cultures and societies outside the uk but there's this kind of minority report or this or this at least this kind of tradition within the uk of community studies and it's it's striking that it's in the us as well and that it would be interesting to do a transatlantic study of Radcliffe Brown students in the US who do community studies and Malinowski's and Raven Firth's students who do similar community studies in, in the UK. Um, but these are figures like um, Michael Young, um, um, Kenneth Little in Edinburgh, who does important work um, on race and migration in the UK. And then this really um, intriguing and to me really important figure called elizabeth bot who becomes a psychoanalyst um i think later in life but for a time at least writes these really groundbreaking works of of social network analysis um and i'll just try and briefly explain why i think and why at least a couple of other historians of social science think those are so important so you've got malinovsky's idea of, of of culture in a, in a bounded locale and this kind of thick webs of interactivity and face-to-face culture, um, face-to-face interaction um, uh, and culture emerging from all of that. Um, and people in the community studies tradition go searching for that in Britain. And to some extent, they find it. If you're and Kenneth, Kenneth Little, you find it in Cardiff amongst um, a kind of multiracial working class Um, who exist in these communities um, in Cardiff. If you're Michael Young, you find it to some extent in Bethnal Green uh, in London. Um, But the problem that they always run into is, you know, well, where do you, where are the edges of this community? Where's the, where are the limits of that social structure? How do we delimit it? How do we draw a line around it? And Elizabeth Bott really kind of, burst out of that paradigm by coming up with this idea of the social network um, at the same time seemingly as John Barnes does as well and Elizabeth Bott says no it's not the face-to-face stuff it's not where people are geographically in relationship to each other that matters but it's the density of the connections regardless of where people are it's whether you keep in touch with your auntie in Edinburgh, even if you live in London, it's how much time you spend um, corresponding with your friend miles and miles away that matters. And that's really the way that we think of social networks in the age of Facebook now. But you know, in the era of the community study, it was all about finding these traditional working class neighborhoods and they had to be small and everyone had to live in the same place. But Bot said, well, yeah, maybe to some extent, that exists, but actually, you know, much more interesting are these extended ramified networks of relations. Um, And she kind of, it's kind of a revolution in social science Um, and, you know, social network analysis owes a lot to, a lot to that insight.
1: Yeah. If, what are we studying? If we're not going to study the village capital T capital V People trying to take these social anthropological methods uh, were looking for discrete, bounded spatio-temporal envelopes of interaction—the village or the island or the tribe—and um, then when they tried to apply those models to England, they found that it, you know you you didn't come across networks that were as nicely bounded as they were in the Pacific or Africa, uh, which we should just say. Those those networks were probably not as bounded as they were as people thought in the Pacific and Africa. There was sort of an act of elision that to create those bounded communities in the first place. But but uh, never mind that. Um, so Bot was the person who was able to solve that problem of if we're not going to study a building or a a, a town square, where we can study the the social network, the people who have social ties, regardless of regardless of where they're living. That's yeah, interesting. And um, is there been a biography of her? If people wanted to learn more about her, she is she is such an underappreciated figure. Um, can you remind us of who are the scholars who've who've worked on her biography?
0: Um, so the person who's probably done the most work on Elizabeth Bott is a sociologist at the LSE called Mike Savage, who's written a couple of really important articles, which I draw on extensively um, about Elizabeth Bott and. Has written a book on the history of uh, sociology in Britain, um, which kind of carries on that work in which Elizabeth Bott's kind of hugely important uh, role. I'm not sure, you know, whether there is actually a biography of Bott. I mean, if there isn't one, there really should be.
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, one of the things that you do in this book is highlight uh, a lot of people. I don't know if... uh, we'll get a chance to talk about all of them. Uh you mentioned Kenneth Little and some of these other people who are really deserve a biography. And it's just now getting to be far enough away from the present that this is the time when people would be turning to that for projects. So there's a lot of um great work to be done for people who are interested in doing it. Yeah,
0: thanks. I mean that's that's one of the hopes of of that I got to while while finishing this book. You know, I think that everyone writes their PhD and it feels like this huge grab bag of kind of everything you know, and then you try and craft it into a more kind of coherent whole or whatever. But maybe in the way that, you know, Elizabeth Bott says, you know, these bounded networks are kind of illusory. A book is a kind of open ended network in a way which has denser bits and then looser bits. And and some of those looser bits of the mesh, you know, there's so many of them in the history of anthropology that could could with being filled out, especially Elizabeth Bott, but just one other figure who I just want to mention um, is this, this amazing researcher, Phyllis Dean, who mm,
1: yes, did economic about economic research.
0: Phyllis Dean. Yeah, so Phyllis Dean is just totally fascinating. I mean, she's, she's kind of a pioneer in so many ways. She um, does desk research in the UK in the 1940s on government statistics, on Jamaica, and some Central African colonies, what's now Zambia and Zimbabwe, most importantly, and she's kind of working with the pioneers of national income accounting to try and work out what's going on in these in these colonies and how they've changed over time, and especially what's happened very recently because it's the war and how they can be mobilised to produce more and create more for the for the war effort. It's part of this huge transformation, this real paradigm shift in economics towards national income accounting um, and she really realizes that lots of the statistics are just absolute rubbish you know the governments just aren't publishing good statistics and she's knows enough from reading about these societies that some of the conceits of national income accounting of bounded households of of prices of exchanges of goods and services etc which might work in a capitalist economy um, with lots of money, doesn't work so well um, in societies which are much less cash-based and in which lots of production happens within the household or between households so she goes to central africa and bumps into or works with the rhodes livingston institute researchers who are max gluckman and various other important anthropologists of central africa and she does loads and loads of household surveys and treats economics as an empirical field science. Um, And Mary Morgan at the LSE has written really important work on her, which I relied on a lot. Um, But intriguingly, um, uh, Philistine kind of leaves that world behind in the 50s and becomes perhaps the preeminent early historian of the Industrial Revolution in England in a series of, of articles in the late 1950s. So she moves from doing colonial National income accounting to do long range economic history of national income accounts going back into the Middle Ages in England. And that's where um, economic history and development economics, which to outsiders might seem like very, very different things, are actually really fused and united in the methods and questions they have. Um, And Philistine is a kind of pioneer in both fields. Um, And again, is not someone who's. Um, being the subject of an extended biography that I know of. Um, And apart from a few really intriguing and important secondary works of of chapters and articles, um, she's someone like Elizabeth Bott who, you know, I I only did a small amount of research given their importance into them. And they would, you know, Philistine would would repay um, further research in huge measure, it seems to me.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. And thank you for um, mentioning her turn to history. I just wanted in closing to just get one more topic that's in this book out on the table. You know, you mentioned that you uh, were exposed to anthropology early on in the context of early modern history. And the book ends with a discussion of um, English cultural and social history, E.P. Thompson and, and Keith Thomas, um, and, and Philistine apparently was part of that movement as well. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, anthropology's relationship to that movement in English history as well? Yeah. So, so
0: in a way, the book ends with where my my interest kind of began, and then I kind of backfilled from there. But it ends with this story of the sixties and seventies in Britain with historians. Getting more and more interested in in what was then the new discipline, really, of of social history of a particular sort. And what they saw the anthropologists doing, they wanted to do for the past. So they wanted to look at not just the elites. They wanted to understand the lives of peasants, of the lives of people before the advent of capitalism, the lives of people who lived in small villages, which really were cut off from... um, relatively much larger social and political processes of course they were going on around them but these were places in which social change was relative to after 1800 relatively slow um, and historians like Keith Thomas um, drew on anthropology at the time in uh, and then wrote about witchcraft in English history and E.P. Thompson drew on anthropology um, published at the time and since Malinowski I mean Malinowski was a really key influence on him to think about this idea of the moral economy. Uh, Another figure is Karl Polanyi, whose Great Transformation, there's a key chapter in that, which almost all the references are to Malinowski and Raymond Firth and this German anthropologist, Richard Turnwald. Um, So social anthropology kind of has this second life, really, in social history, and I brought in this idea of development economics before, It's amongst these historians, especially in the hands of E.P. Thompson, that the anthropologists actually get mobilized to create, and Karl Polanyi, I should add, um, Thompson and Polanyi create this kind of minority report on economic development itself. These ideas of the moral economy, of embeddedness, um, in substantivism, all become ways in which an earlier generation of anthropologists um, were in Britain, this social anthropology of Firth and Audrey Richards and Malinowski himself, get turned into a kind of critique in some ways of the economic development that the economists want to do, which is big top-down projects of economic growth. So I kind of ended where I began my research, but it was with a new story that I hadn't appreciated before, of kind of critique of what James Scott calls high modernist planning. Um, And anthropology really provided a lot of the empirical and methodological heft to make those critiques. Um, So that was a really surprising, surprising finding. And it feels like maybe to historians that anthropological inheritance isn't so familiar. And maybe to anthropologists as well. Maybe anthropologists read E.P. Thompson, maybe even Karl Polanyi without realising quite how similar their arguments are to this tradition that I'm reconstructing at the LSE in the 1930s of Malinowski and his students.
1: I definitely feel like I was taught, well, I'm I'm familiar with Polanyi because my supervisor studied with Polanyi. So I, uh, I have a sense that the anthropologists were connected with Polanyi, but I I was introduced to Thompson. I think many other people were as a kind of British cultural studies that could inform anthropology. You know, a, a, a Marxist leftist um, cultural history, uh, not someone who was influenced by Malinowski at all. And it's it's very surprising and interesting to think of him as someone who who read Malinowski. I would never have put that together.
0: Yeah, I mean the the influence is really is really strong. Um, although the citations aren't there, so you have to read quite carefully. But if you read the the moral economy, the you know, landmark moral economy article, um, you know he mentions um, Melanesian man and uh, the various kind of implicit references to Malinowski when critiquing um, economic historians about what motivates people. Um, in their work and in their labor and in their exchanges. And it's Malinowski's all over it.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I'd love to talk with you more about this, but I I do want to let you go. I know it's quite late over there. Um, Thanks for writing this interesting book. And, you know, we talked about how there's so much more to be filled in. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you think your next project might be?
0: Yeah, well actually I'm
1: kind of taking a
0: handbrake turn and speeding away from the history of anthropology um pretty quickly. Um my my new job at Manchester is to um carry on a totally different research project about migration history from Britain. Um I won't go into the details of how it relates to the first book, which it does. Um but it's really about emigration, and it's about mass emigration from Britain and how it transforms the British state. So it's a totally different field, <laughs> totally different uh, project, totally different methods. Um, but you know, I hope that I hope that others at least um, might read this book and uh, want to follow up some of its um, kind of pathways through the through the thickets of anthropological history to try and, um, you know, do their own research and follow up on interesting figures. I mean, as as every, you know, as always, a book is only a kind of small amount of the research that gets done. Um, and it's one of the strange things about about publishing a book that I'm increasingly being asked to talk about the book when I stopped writing it years ago now um it just takes so long to come out and you know this new research on emigration is is kind of i'm beginning to publish from that so it's nice to go back and revisit some of this stuff but it's nice to go back with a fresh set of eyes and with a new set of interests
1: well i i really enjoyed reading this book so i am sure that uh, your next book will also be very thoroughly documented and uh, i look i look forward to having a look at it so uh freddie thanks once again for being on the podcast Thanks so much, Alex. So everyone, that was Freddie Fox, author of Participant Observers, Anthropology, Colonial Development, and the Reinvention of Society in Britain, which was published in this year, 2023, by the University of California Press. If you like this conversation and would like to hear more, please look for more on the New Books Network website or your favorite podcatcher. Have a good day.